Good morning, City Church. I'm Dustin Krantz. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is awesome to be with you. And we are concluding our series called Engage Your Neighbor this week. And uh, just a couple of quick updates on two sort of major um, action steps that that we have given as a church as a result of this. The first is a, a corporate sort of tangible expression of love from City Church to our community, and that is the RIP medical debt relief, where we have we have made a donation in the number of $15,000 to RIP Medical Debt, an organization in New York, and they will do magic and turn that into $1.5 million in medical debt relief for people at or below the poverty line in Vandenberg County. And so um, we will be able to, to send a card to people, not we, but the hospital, will send a card to people in our city that says, we may never meet, but as an act of love in the name of Jesus, your debts are forgiven, signed City Church. And um, it's just a really neat way to express love to our community in a way that is tangible and real, and, and people outside of us get that and say, that's amazing. And so um, as of this morning, I was told we were at $11,700, and so we are almost there. And if you want to make a contribution above your normal giving to help us get to $15,000, that's awesome, and you can do so. Um, the other update of things that we're counting are acts of love and um, that is an individual assignment that we've given is that we want to record tangible expressions of love that we do for our neighbors and um, lynevv.org is a place that you can go to log that in and you just enter in your um, yeah your act of love that you did for someone that is your neighbor someone you live work play with and um, yeah record it. And so it is so neat to get the report every Friday of what has been recorded in City Church. Um, we, we had this week, um, again, people who spent time with lonely friends and relatives, people who, who cooked dinner for a friend and, and went and took it to their house. Um, somebody who said they were walking in a downpour next to somebody else who did not have an umbrella, so they shared their umbrella, and then when they were ready to part ways, they handed their umbrella to the person that they'd been walking with and said, you need this more than me. And I just had this picture of someone who was like going to walk wherever they were going, completely drenched, who had now been given an umbrella, and and what an amazing like bright spot in their day that had to have been. And that's just a neat thing that God's people are doing for their neighbors in Evansville. And um, you may or may not have noticed on your way in, there's this weird alarm clock looking thing out at the Welcome Center on the counter. It's like old school analog, like the numbers flip down. And that is a counter that is hooked up to the magic of the internet. And every time you enter an act of love for City Church, it adds a number to our count. And so we can literally, like, see it. I did it just a little bit ago with someone out there, and, like, I hit submit, and three seconds later I got to see it, and it, like, went up a number. So go out afterwards, record your numbers, and watch that thing just whir. And so that'd be really cool. Anyway, um, that acts of love thing, it's not going away after this series. We are going to keep it up front and center um, for the rest of the year because we really do want to get to 5,000 acts of love this year. We think that would be just a great thing to celebrate, not just as a church here, but as a community. Um, combined with other churches in the city of Evansville, we are over 1,000 acts of love together. And so it would be awesome to see what that number could be when God's people in the city are working together to love our neighbors well. So, 
we're talking about loving our neighbors because it's taken directly from Jesus. It's not something that requires a whole lot of translation or knowledge of Greek or uh, hidden nuances to detect. Jesus says, love your neighbor. It's very plain, very spelled out, sort of core. Love God, love your neighbor. Those are the big two. Do those things well, and you're going to be okay. And that comes the story that we've been looking at for the last several weeks is in Luke chapter 10, and it's a, a story that illustrates the kind of love that Jesus is talking about when he says to love your neighbor. It's a story of the Good Samaritan. And it's a story that has so uh, proliferated and infected uh, our narrative as a culture that we have lost the original context and meaning that some of these words would have had for Jesus' audience. Right? We, we hear Samaritan and we think a good person who gives things to people who need them. That is the exact opposite of everything Jesus' audience would have thought a Samaritan was. And there are other things that are going on in the story that Jesus' audience would have understood. And so before we start reading the story again together this week in Luke chapter 10, here are some of the things that, that you need to know about Jesus and his audience. Jesus is a Jewish man from the region of Galilee which is in the Middle East. It's north of the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus spoke, preached, traveled in the region of Galilee most of his ministry. And so Jesus is probably gathered with other Galileans who, as good Jewish people, would go to Jerusalem every year at least once for different religious celebrations. Now, to get from Galilee to Jerusalem, there's a straight-shot line that is a pretty good path, but there's a problem if you're a Jewish person in the first century, and that is there's a region called Samaria between you and Jerusalem. Much like today, if you wanted to travel from Galilee to Jerusalem as a Jewish person, there would be a problem in that you would have to go through the West Bank and you might encounter violence if you went. So it sounds like it's thousands of years ago, but really we're doing the same problem still today. There's a problem that Samaria is between because there's so much hatred between Jews and Samaritans that if they ran into each other, there might be violence, right? There, there was racial, religious, ideological hatred between these two groups. They, they despised each other, and, and it was that both of them claimed to have the right to worship God the way that they thought he should be worshiped. They thought that their lineage was the correct lineage to make them the right chosen children of God. And the nation of Israel saw the Samaritans as half-breeds. For, for any Harry Potter fans, they are mugbloods. We don't like them. Um, we want nothing to do with Samaritans. And so Jesus is talking to people that know about the problem of Samaria. If you're going from Galilee to Jerusalem, you didn't take a straight shot through Samaria. You added an extra couple days to your journey and traveled around and went through some rocky terrain until you got to a town called Jericho. And then you took a 14-mile windy road that was not a great road. It was full of robbers. People would get stopped and robbed all the time because it was windy and it was easy to surprise someone and there wasn't really anything going on except people going from Jerusalem to Jericho because they wanted to not go through Samaria. And so Jesus says a man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho and instantly every Galilean knows exactly why he's on that road and they know the road that he's talking about. Jesus says he's going along, and, and, and that's where the story picks up. 
right? Jesus answers this guy. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed on by the other side. So too, a Levite came to the same place and saw him passed by on the other side. All right, this, is what we're do- this is what we see. Man is robbed, as happened often on this road, stripped of his clothes naked, was beaten within an inch of his life, and left on the side of the road. And then a priest comes by, and some things that we should know about priests, that Jesus' audience knew about priests, is that they were the most holy people in the nation of Israel. They were very well thought of, and they were generally wealthy because of their position. And so this priest that is going by, he has no excuse to not help this guy. There's no way the priest is walking. He's probably got a... a, mode of transportation that does not involve his feet moving him. And so it would not have been hard for him to help this guy get to Jericho. We read this account of the priest who, like, takes the time to go to the other side of the road to stay as far away from this guy as possible, and we instantly judge this guy, right? When I tell this story to my son, the the first guy that goes past, instead of priest, I say pastor, and he knows that I'm a pastor. And he is really, really quick to say that this guy's a bad dude, (laughs) right? The pastor is supposed to help people. He's like got that figured out. Just yesterday in the van, we're driving and and somebody, we talked about somebody who needed help with a project and he said, you need to help him, dad, because you're a pastor. And um, which I'm so thankful um, that he gets that. And anyway, he's really, really quick to know that this guy should be the first one to help this guy because he loves God. Except, the priest in this story probably has some really good excuses that he can offer. See, the fact is, is that the priest was not allowed to touch dead things. Definitely not dead people. And he really, he was only obligated to help people who were Jewish, right? That's what the law required of him, is if he saw a Jewish person in need, he was supposed to help them. This guy has been stripped of his clothes... So he has nothing about the way he's dressed that says, hey, I'm Jewish. He can't talk, so there's nothing about the way that he speaks that says, hey, I'm Jewish. There's nothing that identifies him as uniquely Jewish on the road. So the priest doesn't even know if this is a guy that he's supposed to be helping or not. He's also been beat within an inch of his life, and if you've ever seen someone who is beat within an inch of their life, it is very easy to mistake whether they have life in them or not. And if he's not allowed to touch dead people, this guy's, not, this guy's maybe not Jewish, and he's maybe not alive. So maybe he's not required to help him, and if he does touch a dead person, he's out of a job for a week because he has to go through purification rituals. That means for a week he's not able to minister to God's people the way that he's supposed to. That means he's not able to eat from the tithes, which is his source of income. He's not able to collect the tithes, which is part of how people connect to God and worship and fulfill their obligation to the law. And so in his mind, he's seeing this maybe dead person that will cost him and the people of Israel greatly if he decides to take the chance and go inspect what's going on here. And so he probably has some really good rationale in his head for why it makes sense for him to walk away. And again, it's really easy for us to point the finger 
like I already said, as I tell the story as the pastor, it's actually kind of easy if I pause to see myself in his shoes. Right? How many, how many times have I not been able to help somebody because I was actually late for an appointment with somebody else that I had already agreed to meet? Right? I was supposed to, supposed to go take care of this thing that was really important, and to do this thing in this moment was going to interfere with that, and, and that was a problem. The priest is concerned. He, because he wants to be faithful to the law, because he wants to be righteous, he doesn't actually do the righteous thing in helping this guy on the side of the road. And i got to tell you, I identify with that. As a youth pastor, I can't tell you how many times the last kid to be picked up was a girl student, and it turns out that her parents weren't coming to pick her up. And so it was me and her. And I have to ask myself, do I leave this girl here by herself at night with no ride, or do I get into a car with a girl by myself? I want to look righteous. I want to do the right thing. I don't want to open myself up to criticism or accusation. But she's 15 years old, and I can't leave her here by herself at night. If it were my daughter, there's no way that would be an acceptable answer. If it was my daughter, I would have picked her up, but that's beside the point. Right? How many times have you been in a similar situation? Right? I would love to help you, but just the rules that we have here don't allow me to do that. The, the system that's in place doesn't really accommodate that. It's just sort of the way things are. I, I have an obligation. I'm committed to something else. I, I can't really help in this moment. Next person that goes by is the Levite, and the Levites served the priest. Right? And so in our story at home, just for your information, that's a city kids volunteer. Um, that's the next most holy person under pastors in my son's world. And so you carry that responsibility, city kids volunteers. Um, but no, he, he's passed by the Levite. And the Levites served the priests. And, and what we don't think about when we read the story that Jesus' audience would have, the priest that just went by is his boss. Right? And, and that priest would have made a judgment call of whether or not he was supposed to help that person or not. And so the Levite is in a horrible position because either he, he stops and he helps that guy and he risks looking like an idiot in front of his boss. He risks telling his boss that he doesn't think his boss really understands what his obligation is to the law. Right? He's going to be riding into the same town that evening that his boss is staying in. And when he gets there, his boss will see that he's bringing in this potentially dead man. And now he's unclean. And he's not going to be able to work for his boss because he has took, stepped out on a limb and taken care of this guy that his boss left for dead. Right? And so it's really easy first glance. The Levite is a bad dude. But have you ever been in his shoes? Right? I really want to help you, but my boss doesn't really value the same things that I do. I would love to do that, but, but the, the, the lady I work for, she's not a fan of th- handling things that way, and so I can't. Right? I, I can't even express it, but in my head, I know that I would love to do that, but that would upstage my boss, and that's not a good position to be in as an employee. Right? And so Jesus has introduced us 
to two people that are weighing the tension that comes with loving our neighbors well. Right? The tension that they feel, it's, it's a tension that we introduced last week, and it's, it's, it's this idea that we are to love our neighbors really well, but that depends on our definition of who our neighbor is. Right? We said that, that a lot of times when we look at what our definition of a neighbor is, that, that the more a neighbor looks like us, the easier it is for us to see them as a neighbor. Right? The more like us someone is, the easier it is for us to see them as our neighbor. And, and we can intellectually maybe agree that that's not really the case, but if we look at our actions, if we look at the way that our lives are set up, the people that we most readily love are people that look like us whether that's physically look like us or have similar socioeconomic demographic markers as us, that have the same ideological stances that we do. We like people who look like us. It's easier for us to love them. It is much harder to love people who look different from us, people who see the world differently than us, people who have different circumstances than us. That requires an extra level of effort to, to love them. And what these guys are weighing is that when that spectrum of... And did we put that up on the screen? No. Can we get that? Right? So we've got somewhere in here. Somewhere between left and right, your definition of who your neighbor is breaks down. There's an extra tension that's introduced when you cross that with acts of love that are costly versus not costly. Right? If you find yourself with these four quadrants here, and, and really people that are like me, that need love that doesn't cost me anything, those are really easy acts of love to do. It is easy to see those people in those moments as my neighbors. Right? People that think the same way I do, that are in close proximity to me, that I'm relationally connected with, that don't really need a whole lot, it's kind of easy to love those people. It's also kind of easy to love people who don't look like me when it doesn't cost me anything, right? When it doesn't take much effort, when it doesn't take much time. When I say cost, I don't just mean money. I mean energy. I mean patience. I mean, um, yeah, your time. The things that we hold precious. I can help somebody who doesn't look like me, who might have a completely different set of circumstances to me, is all I have to do is, is write an email, or all I have to do is write a check. Or all I have to do is show up at this place and, and, and hold a sign or sign a petition for somebody. I can do that. That's a piece of cake. If all I have to do is share something on Facebook, I can do that. It actually is harder to love someone who's like me that costs a lot. Right? If you're a parent, right? you have people that physically look like you who also cost a lot of money and time and patience and energy, right? And there are times when getting a glass of milk isn't a big deal. That didn't cost me much, but being the enforcer of discipline is really, really hard. And the story that Jesus continues to tell is someone who does a great deal of love for someone who does not look like him in a way that is incredibly costly. And that's what makes this story so powerful when Jesus tells it to the people that are listening. Because we can all wrap our heads around those three quadrants of love. It's the fourth one that gets really difficult. But that's what this Samaritan does, right? If we continue 
the story in verse 33. Right? But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him into an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. That's an incredible amount of love that this Samaritan shows the man. Right? And if we're going in the order of priest, Levite, it should then be really good Jewish guy. But Jesus introduces the Samaritan as the hero. And he's saying that that's who you're supposed to love. That's the way that you're supposed to love. And so anybody in any of the quadrants can be your neighbor. And so when we say that love God, love others are the big two, everyone's included. Anybody that needs help is your neighbor. And what the Samaritan does, it's, it's really, it's, it's a pretty simple formula to follow. He sees someone that he can help. He identifies what this person needs. He has compassion. And then he uses the resources that he has to help him. Right? That's really simple to say. It's really, really hard to act out. He puts him on his own donkey. He rides him into town, which would be a dangerous action for this guy. Remember, Jews and Samaritans, they don't go through each other's towns because they could incur violence. I want you to picture Wild West America. It's the end of the day in an outpost town. A Native American comes walking a horse in with a cowboy on its back with two arrows in its back. Everybody's really excited to see that guy, right? Nobody assumes anything. They instantly think this guy is helping this poor cowboy. That's what the Samaritan took on going into this inn. He walks this man who'd been beat within an inch of his life. He's immediately dressed his medical needs as best he can on the road. He puts him up. He takes care of two weeks worth of a stay in medical care at the inn. He knows that the innkeeper is kind of a shady guy and that when he comes back and says, if you need anything more, just let me know that that guy is totally going to take advantage of him and tell him four times what it probably was going to cost. And he does it anyway. That's the kind of love that the Samaritan is modeling. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. That's the kind of love that you're supposed to have. Anyone that you can help is your neighbor. Go and do likewise. Okay, at this point you're thinking, why did I come to church today? Right? That's, that's not a, a fun standard to have put on me. Right? And, and you're going to compare me to Jesus. And, and anyone I can help, anything I can do to help them, that, that's, a, that's a lot of people I should be helping. That's a lot of things I should be doing. I just want to tell you, take a breath. I am not here to shit on you. Right? You don't need any more things that you should do. I don't need anybody to tell me I should do this. What does it mean when Jesus says, love 
like him. Go and do likewise. Here's the thing. Jesus is not saying that you have to fix everything and everyone in your life. You can't do that. Okay? It is not possible. That is not the expectation of Jesus, that you would fix every situation, every person that you come into contact with. At the end of this story, as incredible as it is, you know what has not been fixed? The prejudice that everyone felt towards that Samaritan. In that story, the problem with the road to Jericho being a place that is known where people are robbed and taken advantage of has not been addressed. And he doesn't say that you then have to go fix the road to Jericho. He doesn't say that you now have to totally uproot systemic hatred for another people. But that's really easy for us to think that's what Jesus is saying. Go and fix everything and everyone. But that's not what Jesus is asking his followers to do. What Jesus is saying is to love your neighbor with my love as best as you can. Right? Underneath every bit of injustice in our world, whether it was 2,000 years ago or today, every bit of injustice in our world is not a problem of Jews and Samaritans. It's a problem of sin. It's not a problem of of what happens on the road to Jericho. It's not a problem of what happens in the city of Evansville. It is a problem of sin. And you cannot fix the problem of sin. Jesus is the only one who can fix the problem of sin, and he did. Right? This story that Jesus is telling of what happens on the road to Jericho is foreshadowing Jesus' own journey that he would be taking from Jericho to Jerusalem in just a little bit. Because it was on that road when Jesus gets to Jerusalem that Jesus would recognize fully, that Jesus would tell us we are a people who were dead because of sin. We are people who are completely broke, bankrupt, stripped because of our own sin. And Jesus would enter our story as the one who recognizes our condition, who reacts with compassion, who would place our burden upon himself, who would take the neglect and the scorn of religious leaders upon himself, who would pay a debt far greater than anything we could ever cover ourselves, sacrificially, so that we might have life. That is the love that Jesus completely demonstrates. Right? Jesus loved us who were most not like him. Right? If he is perfect, he is holy, we are very not like him. And he loved us in, in the costliest way possible. That is the love that Jesus has for us. That he would die for us so that we might have life in him. Right? So that we might become new creations with new life who could live serving the resurrected king. That's the good news of the gospel. Jesus is not telling us all the things that we should do 
if we want to be in his good graces. He's telling us, this is the way that I have loved you. Now imitate that. Not so that you can fix the world. Not so that you can overturn every single injustice that you may ever encounter. But so that you might live in the kingdom of God now. So that others might be reconciled to me through you. That's the ministry that he has given us as his children. And he does not demand perfection. But he tells us, go and do likewise. That's how you love your neighbor. And so you may be asking, what does that look like? Right, so real quick, I want to share three examples. Right, two of them are from us right here at City Church. Okay, I want to tell you, I get to serve on the board for a ministry that, that happens here in Evansville, was started by a lady that, that's here in Evansville, goes to our church, and it's a ministry to strippers in the city of Evansville. And every month at two different strip clubs, we're hoping to get into three this year, we send volunteers who go and they bring gifts and snacks with them into the dressing rooms of the strip clubs to hang out with the dancers. And they, and they spend 30, to an hour, 30 minutes to an hour just hearing these girls' stories. And they listen to them and they tell them that they are loved and that they see potential in them and, and that they're valuable. And they're valuable not because of anything that they give them, but they're valuable because they were created in the image of God. And those ladies, they call them the church ladies. That's the official name of our volunteers. The church ladies are people that don't want anything from them. They just want to love them. And that was born out of someone who recognized someone who was in need They identified the need. They responded with compassion with the resources they had available to them. Right? And and the most valuable resource that the church ladies have is not money that they bring to the girls because we don't do that. The most valuable resource that, that these church ladies have is that they are compassionate. Right? They have the ability to not be offended by anything. And believe me, there's plenty to be offended by. I have read the reports. They, they have the patience to let the Holy Spirit work in these ladies' lives. And they're patient with them in the process. They let God work the plan in this girl's life. And they're there to support them through it. Right? Here, here's another story from our people here at City Church. Um, I mentioned last week there is a foster care crisis in our city. Right? In our county alone, we have close to 1,000 children who are in need of foster homes. For those children, we have 150 homes to place them. Okay, that's not a good ratio. We are on lists nationally as bad places to be if you were a kid whose parents cannot take care of you. Right? There is a need in our city for kids to be loved, to have stable places to live while their life tries to get sorted out. They're helpless in the matter, right? These are, these are very helpless individuals who have been through trauma, who definitely need care and love, but it's incredibly costly. We have a family here in City Church who has become foster parents in the last year. They have taken one of these kids into their homes, and that is incredible. It's wonderful. It's definitely identifying a need responding with compassion with the resources that God has blessed them with. 
we need more foster parents in Evansville. I know, you're thinking, I can't be a foster parent. And I get it. That's not the only way that you can help a kid who needs foster care. Because the reality is, in addition to foster parents, we also need court-appointed special advocates who, who help represent that child's best interests that aren't working in favor of the court or the prosecutor or the parents. They're just there for the well-being of the child. And so you hang out with the kid, you show up at court appointments, and you help give a recommendation to the judge of what you think is best for the kid. We need people who help foster families because a lot of times families don't make it through their first year with the kid because they don't have enough support around themselves. It is a hard, costly act of love to take another child who's been through trauma into your home. But if there are babysitters who come every week to give you a date night with your spouse, that makes it a lot more manageable. If there's a group of people who cook a meal for your family once a week, that makes it a lot more manageable because it's one less night that you're acting like a crazy person getting everybody fed. If there's, if there's a team of people that show up and they take care of mowing your grass so that that's one more thing that's off your list, you guys are really good at mowing grass. I see it in the Acts of Love report. There's ministries like, like a, a place called Borrowed Hearts here in Evansville that they work, to, they, they, they work to gather all the supplies that a foster family might need. So when you're told, hey, we have an 18-month-old that we're going to place with you, you don't have to run to Target and buy a crib and baby supplies and diapers and all that. They, they, Borrowed Hearts has it all. Here you go. We got everything you need to take care of a two-year-old. Right? Th- those are all things that you can do to be a part of the solution that have nothing to do with actually becoming a foster parent. Jesus is not saying fix everything and everyone. Do everything that this world might need. What he is saying is identify needs in front of you. On the path that you are on, who are the people that God has placed in your world, identify a need, act with compassion, and use the resources that you've been given to make a difference. That is something that every one of us can do. And it doesn't have to be a volunteer. Right? It doesn't have to be an extra volunteer opportunity because I know some of you are also thinking, I don't have time for another thing. And I do not have time to go into all the details of the story, but I strongly encourage you to read the book, The Search for God and Guinness. Okay? And it is the best book about beer you will ever read. <laughs> And yes, it really Guinness beer. That's, that's what the book is about. It follows the story of the beer company and Guinness family that founded the beer company. And, and this is a group of people, Arthur Guinness, the guy who founded the company, he, he lived in a tension that he had two lives. He had his business life and he had his, his faith life. He's a very sincere, faithful man who, who cared strongly about God, who also had a massive business empire he was trying to build and he couldn't ever seem to reconcile those things until he had his perspective changed and he realized that those two didn't have to be separate lives right the two principles that that he decided that he was going to use to run his life were, were that any work that is done well for the glory of God is holy right that is a holy act to do work well for the glory of God even if it's making beer and the second was you can't expect to make money from people unless people can expect to make money from you. And so if you, if you read the story of, of Guinness, it is remarkable. In 1928, the year before the Great Depression, 1928, okay, 
if you worked at Guinness, you would have a pay that was 20% higher than the average worker in Dublin. Right? There was 24-hour medical and dental care. There was on-site massage therapy available. There were athletic facilities. There were thinking rooms where if a guy had an idea that he thought was worth pursuing, he could go find a quiet space to think that idea out. Your pension was fully paid without you ever making contributions to it. There were courses offered to your wife at home so that she could take better care of the kids and make a better home. They realized that, that their workers needed better housing conditions, so they built houses and gave them to their workers. They said the, the city matters because the city is where we get our workers and the workers are who make our product. And so let's take really good care of our workers and let's take really good care of our city and that will make really good beer and it will make everybody thrive. And so every year, every Guinness employee, his whole family was given a day in the countryside and transportation, the food, the entertainment, it was all covered by Guinness. They brought in medical doctors to examine the housing conditions of Dublin and said, what does the city of Dublin need? And he said, well, they need a lot. And they said, we'll pay for it. And you can go to Dublin, Ireland today, and your cab driver can tell you how Guinness changed his family's life. You can go to the college in town, and a professor will tell you that I am here because Guinness paid for my grandfather's education. Generations have been changed because a company had the idea that what we do matters. And our purpose is not just to make money, but our purpose is to glorify God. And so we're going to love our people well, and that's going to transform the world. So if you're in a position of influence, if you're in a position of ownership, if you're in a position of management, Maybe you don't even need to add another volunteer thing into your world. Maybe you just need to examine the path that God has placed you on, identify a need, respond in compassion, and ask him, what are the resources you have given me to make a difference? When we have a church full of people doing that, we'll see that come to fruition. And the only reason it's possible is because Jesus loved us. Jesus loved us first. The, the love that he describes in this story is love that he lives out completely. He tells us, go and do likewise, not out of obligation, but out of love. Overtake this world with love. The love that was expressed for you on a cross and was verified as the strongest force in the world when he was raised from the dead. Let's be people who know that love. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for loving us. Lord, thank you for, for seeing us as neighbors even when we were the most unlike you, the most costly neighbors you could possibly have. Jesus, would you give us unique insight into our world? Would you allow us to see the people on the road that you have positioned us to love well? Would you give us compassion? Would you give us insight? And would you give us wisdom to know how might we use the resources that you've given us to bless this world?
Jesus, we pray that your kingdom would come here in Evansville beyond like it is in heaven. Lord, may it come through us. Jesus, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.